Is a football player set apart and sanctified? I don't know what those terms mean. I mean, I do know what they mean, but... Is a football player holy? Is uh, Who's a famous football player? Tim Tebow? Tom Brady? Give me a few more. Really? You guys don't know a few more? In Alabama, you don't know a few more? Who? Aiden Hutchinson. Okay. Who? Tua? Okay. Patrick Mahomes. Okay, if any of those guys walked in this room right now, would they be considered like holy? Absolutely they would. Yeah, you, I mean, you guys are nerds. Apparently you don't watch football. But yeah, they would be considered holy. If they walked into a Walmart, if Tim Tebow walked into a Walmart, he would be, considered, he would be treated like he's holy. Right? In, a, in the midst of a football game, aren't the football players treated like they're holy? Aren't they, you know, to, to the point that many people in the stands try to mimic their holiness. The, the football players even wear a uniform of holiness, don't they? They have, this, they have these jerseys on. And the jerseys set them apart from just anybody. And they wear all this gear and everything. And then people in the stands like that holiness so much that they try to emulate that. And so you'll see the stands are full of people who are trying to be holy like they're holy. And, but I mean, you get them down there, they wouldn't last you know, one, one inning. What is it? Down? I don't know. What it, that tells you how much I watch football, right? Semester? Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure that's college. But holiness is like this... Um, yeah, you look at something and you recognize it's notably different. It's set apart for a purpose. And that's why there's a whole sect of Judaism, a whole sect of Judaism, that they dress all the same. Did you know that's why Hasidic Jews will all wear all black? They all dress identical to one another. Why is that? Why, why do they wear like the black hat or the kippah or everything? It's because they can walk around the streets and everyone can look at that person and say, ah, I know that they're a Hasidic Jew. And they're probably not going to do this. They're probably not going to do that. They're probably not going to touch this or eat this. They're holy, right? And, and that's the essence of, of wearing the uniform and having the look of holiness. It's, it's like completely unique. And in our faith, you know, we don't really wear a uniform. And in fact, if you ever walk into a place of worship and everyone's dressed the same and talking the same and acting the same, just run, please. It's not a good place. But we do have this, this idea and we carry forward this idea, this torch of holiness, don't we? This idea that we're to be called called out and set apart for a specific purpose. But that's lost many times on us because we don't understand true holiness and what holiness is. And I, I want to do a quick review. I've got some words up here on the board. Does anyone remember the Hebrew word for holy? Kadosh. And it is right here. Kadosh in Hebrew. Kaf, Dalit, Vav, Shin. Kadosh. Kadosh. Kadosh implies this, like it's just different. It's unique. It's unique. What's the opposite of Kadosh? Common. It's not profane. It's not sinful. It's not evil or wicked. Although those things will inhibit your Kadoshness. But the opposite of holy is just common. Remember I've mentioned in Revelation, Yeshua says, I want you to be either hot or cold. Not just common, not just lukewarm, or I'll spew you out of my mouth. Now there is this part of the Godhead that fills us when we are baptized in Him 
as new believers, we are filled with this ruach of kadosh. The Holy Spirit, as it's translated in English. The Holy Spirit. And what is the role of the Holy Spirit? To drive us towards holiness. The Holy Spirit is, is a part of the triune Godhead that lives in us, that causes us to want to be holy. The Holy Spirit is writing the words of God on our heart to cause us to want to do them. The Holy Spirit is there to convict us when we disobey the words of God. The Holy Spirit is there to teach and, and to convict and to give us boldness to speak the words of God when the time arises. Now, that's what we would see in the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh. Going forward in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, does anyone remember the Greek word for holy? It's over there in the Greek. It's close, close. It's agios, hagios. Hagi, that, that first letter is kind of pronounced like an H, hagios. Now, there's the same, the same principle. The Holy Spirit is, is, is going to carry through into the New Testament as well. And it's not just a New Testament concept. But the Holy Spirit in Greek is the pneuma hagion. Pneuma hagion. Pneuma, have you guys ever had pneumonia? It's the idea of your breath. It's the wind that comes out of your lungs. Same thing as the ruach. The ruach, the ruach was the thing that hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 and excited them to, to be born and come and to be created. The pneuma is the breath. And it says in uh, is it um, 2 Timothy 3.16, somebody correct me on this, that all scripture is God breathed. Yeah, God breathed. It uses that pneuma, that same Greek word. It's, it's the breath of God. The breath of God. Okay? Numa agion, it means the holy breath or the holy spirit of God. It has the same thing. It's the same as the Ruach HaKodesh or Ruach Kodesh. So good. You got the idea of, of holiness and you know the words of holiness. Let me apologize ahead of time. I am still totally recovering from this illness that has just completely knocked me off my feet this week. But um, so I, I apologize. This isn't going to be like an award winning teaching or be even super long for that matter, but today we wanted to move on to another part where we're talking about holiness and our series on holiness. Last week, Bob talked about holy health, and I just remember sitting on the couch listening to the live stream with a low-grade fever and hearing him talk about Sam's Club pizza and hot dogs, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I didn't know what that had to do with health and how, but he was talking about deals you can get. Uh, at Sam's, no, I'm just kidding. He did a great job teaching about health, and thank you, Bob, for doing that. And then the week before that, I talked about an intro, introduction to holiness. Next week, you're going to be treated with Patrick up here. He's going to be teaching about holy homes. Today, you have the privilege of hearing me talk about holy marriage. Let's define marriage according to the Bible first and foremost. Because how many of you know the state of Alabama? They, you know, they might have a good, decent working definition. Is, you know, it's, is it the same as the state of California's? No. Is it the same as this, uh, you know, the, the, this, the country of North Korea? No, it's not. Holiness, if we need a, or a marriage and holy marriage, we need to define it from God's unchanging word. God's the source of truth in this universe. So let's define it according to the Bible. Now, I did all the work for you. I, I, I've got the definition of marriage according to the Bible. Here it is. Are you ready? Hopefully you meet this if you're married. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> a lifelong covenantal relationship 
partnership and commitment of exclusivity between one consenting adult male and one consenting adult female who have, through a mediator, bound their commitment together through the public exchanging of vows before God and a group of godly witnesses. Right there. There's your definition of biblical marriage. Now, that definition in and of itself is getting more and more kadosh, isn't it? More and more holy, isn't it? I mean, just take the idea of lifelong. 50% of marriages are doomed to failure. Take the idea of exclusivity between partners. There's a whole movement of people out there that, that have open relationships and open marriages, polyamorous relationships. It's unbiblical. It's sinful. A consulting adult male and one consenting adult female. In, in Islam, in some extreme factions of Islam, fundamental attractions of, of Islam, uh, uh, arranged marriage is still 100% a thing. One adult male, one adult female. Polygamy has no place in the body of Messiah. It might not send you to hell, but you're going to go through it. As, uh, who is it that said that? I need to give him credit. Bill Cloud said that. I love it. But polygamy does things to the psychology and the brain of a woman that are destructive, that are selfish, that are prideful, and that are sinful. And they have no place in the body of Messiah. One male, one female, adults, who exchange vows before God and a group of godly witnesses. We need to make our unions public before and through a mediator and a group of witnesses. But that definition in and of itself is getting more holy by the day, isn't it? Male and female. Wow. I am a bigot. I hate, I clearly hate people, don't I? No, I just love the God of the universe. Enough to speak his truth. So if you don't fit into that criteria, if your union doesn't fit into that, then you, you do not have a biblical marriage. You are not married. The, the state of Alabama may rubber stamp a piece of paper, or, or the state of California may sign something or email you something, but that's just fictitious. I'm sorry. Now, you may go and get that stamp or whatever from the state of Alabama. That's, I encourage you to do that because then you can qualify for tax credits and the government gets less of your hard-earned money. I encourage you to do that. But that doesn't make you married. Today I'm speaking, I'm recognizing that I'm speaking to people that are married, single, divorced, widowed, you name it. And not everyone is called to a life of marriage. So recognizing that, I'm speaking to three different groups of people in this, in this, in this room this morning. Those who are single and called to be married. Those who are already married today. Those who are not called to be married, but are called to live a single life to allow them more freedom to better serve the kingdom of God. Matthew 19.12 says, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those who, to, to whom that has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7.1. 1 Corinthians 7. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. First Corinthians seven, you guys there? We're gonna read ten verses. Now to deal with the questions you wrote about. Is it good for a man to keep away from women? Paul says, Well, because of the danger of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife what she is entitled to in the marriage relationship, and the wife should do the same for her husband. The wife is not in charge of her own body, but her husband is. Likewise, the husband is not in charge of his own body, but his wife is. Do not deprive each other, except for a limited time, by mutual agreement, and then only so as to have extra time for prayer. But afterwards, come together again. Otherwise, because of your lack of self-control, you may succumb to the adversary's temptation. Verse 6, I'm giving you this as a suggestion, not as a command. Actually, I wish everyone were like me meaning single like Paul. But each has his own gift from God. One this, another that. Now to the single people. All the single ladies, oh no. And the widows. I say that it is fine if they remain unmarried like me. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should get married. Because it is better to get married than to keep burning with sexual desire. To those who are married, I I have a command. And it is not from me, but from the Lord. A woman is not to separate herself from her husband. But if she does separate herself, she is to remain single or be reconciled with her husband. Also, a husband is not to leave his wife. So there you have it. There's groups of people, biblically Paul's giving his stamp of approval, that there are just some people that are not called to be married, and that's okay. So group number one are those in the room who are called to be married but are single. That might be you today. Group number two are those who are called to live a married life. And if you're called to live a married life, maybe you're single right now, but you're called to live a married life, newsflash, God does have a specific person in mind for you. The million-dollar question is, how do I find that person? And the simplest answer is to live a humble, quiet, godly life that is committed to everyday holiness and purity, pursuing the will and the leading of God in your life. And that's it. Do what he wants you to do and go where he wants you to go. Group number three, those who are called to live a single life. If that's you, much of this morning will not apply to you, but you still serve a vital role in being able to support the local congregation. If you're not marrying, as that frees you to serve the body of Messiah, are you serving the body of Messiah? And in some way, in what way? But today we're going to talk a lot about the first two and talk a lot to the first two groups of people. Marriage... I've only been married 18 years now, and I don't have a perfect marriage. Confession time. But I, I do legitimately and honestly feel that it's getting better year after year. But it takes work, doesn't it? Marriage is such an impractical and awkward institution. Doesn't it? I mean, think about it for a second. Marriage defies all the laws of nature. To be exclusive, I'm talking about biblical marriage defies all the laws of evolution, biological evolution. What do, what do I mean by that? But in, in, in nature, you see every ma- the male of every species thinks calories and then spread my seed 
to as many and as far out as I can. Variety and frequency. Biblical marriage holds a man accountable to one and only one for the rest of your life. So, so right away, if we accept this call of being married according to the Bible's definition of marriage, men have a difficult job ahead of them in terms of, of living up to that call and that holiness. We're going against the nature of, of, of our sinful, fallen human. But when you do accept the impracticality of marriage and, defi- and decide to find a lifelong spouse, you, in the heat of and blinded by your attraction for one another, you end up marrying someone who's just as dysfunctional, sinful, prideful, traumatized, and selfish as yourself. And then it absolutely terrifies you, doesn't it? It's funny how that works. It's like, man, the hormones last just as long, just long enough to get me to where I put a ring on the finger, and then we move in together, and we have a few months of like blissful fun, and it's like, wait a second, this is another fallen human being. But it's always like, no, they're more fallen than I am. <laughs> they're more prideful. They're more so. Really, it's a, you're looking at a reflection of yourself, aren't you? So what do you do? You, I mean, you do what anybody does. You make a copy of yourselves. <laughs> we start producing copies of ourselves, and we hope that things will get better when that happens, don't we? Why? Because, I mean, duh, the sleep deprivation, poopy diapers, increased financial stress, a messier house, a hormone-induced body weight change, that helps any situation get better, right? It doesn't? It keeps you busy. It keeps you busy. I thought that would fix it. No, it just amplifies the problems that are there, aren't there? When that doesn't help fix the problem, and actually brings them more to the surface... We're faced with a choice, aren't we? I've been faced with that choice. And if you've been in this room, have been faced with that choice. Should I stay or should I go? This is really hard. I'm tired. I don't like wiping another human being's behind and changing their diaper at 2 o'clock in the morning. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Right? I wish the house was a little cleaner when I got home. I spent the first five years of my marriage probably complaining about about housekeeping and all this other to think, man, if I could go back in time, I would just take my hand and I would slap myself across the face as hard as I could when I walked in the door every day after work. And I would say, get down on the floor and spend time with your kids and don't complain about your marriage, don't complain about the house, don't complain about food, don't just spend these are precious moments in your life that are just vaporizing and you're squandering them. So what if we re-examine marriage briefly today in an attempt to kind of break this cycle? If, we're really, if we really want to be holy and have a holy marriage, we have to kind of reframe marriage today. How do we make marriage holy again? The, the opposite of holy is common, right? What is, what is a common marriage? What's a common marriage? It's a marriage where you're just kind of like, we're just surviving, Right? Just getting by. We kind of keep our distance. We know we know each other's buttons. We don't push them. You know, we know each other's lanes. We know each other's jobs. We don't we don't we don't interfere, right? We we go we wake up in the morning. We do our thing. We go and it's just like nothing. There's no depth. There's no increase of, of friendship and intimacy. There's no increase of trust and vulnerability between 
you and a spouse. Or it's just divorcing. You know, these differences between us are just incompatible. I might be happier with somebody else. It, let me ask this. Is a holy marriage a perfect one? Oh, absolutely not. And in fact, much of marriage is trying to resolve conflicts that wouldn't be there if you didn't marry each other. Think about that. If you don't want any conflict and any tension in your life, just don't get married. That actually reduces it quite a bit. But the essence and the holiness of marriage lies in the idea that I'm connecting myself to another fallen, prideful, sinful human being. And we're going to work through it. And we're going to overcome it. And we're going to forgive each other and have grace with one another. Therein lies the essence of a holy marriage. Turn with me to Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. We're going to read a little bit here. Because this is kind of like the first marriage in the Bible. Genesis 2.15. God just created everything, created all the animals, created Adam. And we get to verse 15, Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God took the person, took Adam, and he put him in the garden of Eden to, uh, like, to, to, to care for it, to, um, to tend to it, and to guard it. And the Lord God gave the person this order. He said, you may freely eat from every tree that is in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from it, because on that day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And it says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not tov, it is not good that a person should be badad. The Hebrew there is like, is isolated. It's not good that the person should be isolated. Have you guys ever seen that show on the History Channel called Alone? We, we watch it, and it's like the survival show where they take 10 contestants who are highly trained highly experienced survival experts. And they take them out places like in the Patagonia or sometimes in the Arctic up way north in Canada or uh, Vancouver Island is another season. They take these 10 contestants and they, they space them out about five miles from each other and they can't contact one another. And they're allowed, these 10 contestants are allowed 10 tools of survival, primitive tools. And it's basically a last man standing contest of survival. Who can last the longest? And the last person surviving, they, no one knows who's dropped out. No one knows who, how many people are still in the, in, uh, in, the, in the contest. But the last person standing, the boat pulls up to the beach. They go up to their campsite and they tell them, you're the last contestant. It might be 60 days. It might be one guy went in 100 days. It's like, you're the last person. And they give them $500,000. And these people are hardened survival experts. And it starts off with 10. And it is amazing to see one of the things these people just don't prepare for and cannot stand. They can, they can, they can go through sub-zero temperatures, extreme prolonged hunger, exposure to the elements. But one thing they just cannot get used to, and so many drop out from. I'm talking at day 5, day 15, day, day 18. They drop out from isolation. A human being can just not, it's not good for us to be alone. So God says, I will make for him a companion that is a suitable helper. And the Hebrew there is Ezer Konegdo. Can you guys say that? Ezer Konegdo? Yeah, it sounds like one, like a frozen waffle or something, doesn't it? Konegdo. Let go of my ego. No. 
Ezer Konegdo. I will make for him a suitable helper. Notice it doesn't use the word like a servant. To like a like a avada, or like a someone who's like a slave or a servant he uses a ezer kenegdo, and I've got it written up here in Hebrew. That's the bottom word. Ezer kenegdo, suitable helper. Suitable helper. Let's 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 explore this word a little bit because it's important. We see the role of the wife. Go with me to Deuteronomy thirty three seven. Deuteronomy thirty three seven. If we can better understand God's intention for giving us a suitable helper. Maybe it'll change how we view our wives. Deuteronomy 33, 7. It says, Hear Adonai, the cry of Judah. Bring him into his people. Let his own hands defend him. But you, here it is, help connecto him against his enemies. See, God is a helper for the the tribe of Judah against his enemies. Go with me to Deuteronomy 33. Um, go back one verse, actually. Deuteronomy 33, 6. Let Reuben live and not die out, even though his... No, I think I have the wrong verse there. I'll take you to a different one. Go to Psalm 124, verse 8. Psalm 124, verse 8. Psalm 124, 8. See how this word, Ezer Konegdo, is used. Is there. Psalm 124. And look at verse 8. The psalmist is saying, let's go back up to verse 6. Blessed be the Lord who did not leave us to be prey for their teeth. We escaped like a bird from the hunter's trap. The trap is broken and we have escaped. Our Ezer is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let me give you one more verse to look at and consider with this word Ezer. Let's go to... um. I don't know, Psalm 3320. Psalm 3320. Turn there. Psalm 33, verse 20. Psalm 33, verse 20. I'm going to back up to verse 18. So Psalm 33, 18. But Adonai's eyes watch over those who fear him, over those who wait for his grace, to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. We are waiting for the Lord, for Adonai. He is our Ezer and our shield. So there you have it. Let's go back to Genesis 2 now. God says, I want to make for Adam a suitable Ezer. A suitable Ezer. So does that change the perspective of, of this word helper? It's not just like, hey, Gloria, go make me a sandwich. <laughs> what is the Ezer? The Ezer is this figure who is supporting, is defending is coming to the aid of the man. And then you have this word, konegdo, which comes from the, the, the root is nagad, nagad. And it means to stand opposed to. In, jo- in Joshua 5, you remember the, the angel of the Lord that's standing there with the sword as they're about to cross over and, and attack Jericho. You remember that story? It says that he looked up, he opened his eyes, and there, standing nagad to him, was an angel with the sword. Nagad means opposed to. Now you might be thinking, husbands, yeah, my wife is opposed to me. (laughs) Every step of the way, right? So when you look at the role of a wife as being a support, as a defender, but also standing opposed to, it kind of changes this this idea, the original intention God had for creating and giving man a woman. Now you can take your wife's 
kind of natural opposition to you as a constant threat, men. And you can say, yeah, you. I come up with an idea, or I want to go on this trip, or I want to buy this motorcycle, or whatever. And they're always like, wait, have you thought this through? Why do you want to do that, or whatever? And it's like, you can look at that as being, you're just a nagging old wife, right? Go make me a sandwich. No, don't do that. Or you can look at it as like, well, maybe if I do that, that would mean financial ruin for my family. So maybe I shouldn't do that. Or, yeah, maybe that is a really dumb idea to go and do with my friends because they're all just going to get sloshed out there on the water and, you know, and, and just going to be this awful time and I'm, I'm not going to be living a very godly life if I do that. Yeah, maybe those guys aren't. So sometimes the opposition that a wife brings, men, if we, if we rethink of it, it's like, is God speaking to me through my wife and opposing me and my harebrain, or at least getting me to analyze my own ideas and my own thoughts? Because sometimes as men, we just go out and we kill it and we bring it home and we don't know. We have no idea what we just did. We haven't really thought through the dangers of what we're about to do. Sometimes we need a wife to stand opposed to us, don't we? And to defend us. Marriage according to this narrative. Well, let's, let's keep going. We didn't finish, did we? Verse 19, Genesis two nineteen. So from the ground, Adonai God formed every wild animal... And every bird that flies in the air. And he brought them to the person to see what he would call them. Whatever the person would call each living creature, that would be its name. So the person gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the air, and every wild animal. But Adam, there was no, not found a companion suitable for helping him. Then God caused a tardema, a deep sleep, to fall upon the person. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his selah. And it uses, your translation may say rib, but it's... It's not really a rib, and that's where... How many of you believed at one point in your life that men have fewer ribs than women? Yeah, Bob Ray. It's not true. He didn't take one of the ribs. He took, he took his side. And in fact, this word selah, anytime you look at it in the Torah, every single time in the Torah, this word selah only refers to the sides of holy objects in the tabernacle. Like the rings on the Ark of the Covenants or, or the side of the Mishkan. It says he took the side. He took this side, and then he closed up the place from where he took it with his flesh. And this word selah is up here. It's the middle word. Sadi lamet hey. Selah. But he took half of the man, we could say. He took one part of the man and, and, and created this other entity. The only entity he didn't make from the, the ground, by the way. So the rib, the side, the selah, which Adonai God took, uh, had taken from the person, he made an isha, a woman. And he brought her to the man person, the Adam. And the man person said, at last, this is bone, uh, etzim, from my etzim, and flesh from my flesh. She will be called isha, because she was taken out of the ish. And this is why a man is to leave his father and mother and stavak, and actually like glue, fasten themselves to each other with his wife. And they are to be the sar echad, one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of two human beings being completely vulnerable with one another. Completely open and vulnerable with one another, not being ashamed. Marriage, according to this narrative, is the reunion, then, 
of our two separated sides as men. It is another living being, an Isha, being removed to face opposite to us. So that that woman, the Isha, can be our Ezer Kenegdo. Our defense, our support, our helper. Someone to refine us as men. Defend us. Oppose us. Give us support. To be a new family with. You see in the the narrative there, it says, And the man should leave his father and his mother. That's hard. Sometimes a, a, a one person in a marriage sometimes has a hard time with really truly leaving the father and the mother. You see that sometimes. This is constant dependence on the father and the mother. Leave your father and mother. Be one flesh. And then lastly, to be naked with. Or intimate and vulnerable. The wife, men, is literally our other half. The husband, ladies, is your other half. So with that, I'm going to give you three principles of holy marriage today. Three principles of holy marriage. Number one. Be, be mutually determined to be growing your marriage into a relationship that is the most intimate of all of your earthly relationships. If you, whether you call that your best friend, whether you call that your wife or your husband, you should be working and tilling and, 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 and planting seeds in the garden that is your marriage that will make your relationship between you, husbands and wives, the most intimate of all relationships. So that when I when I have something, one of the deepest secrets or struggles or whatever, Stacy is the first person who comes to mind that I want to share that with. If you don't have that in your marriage, you should be working towards it. Even above all other family. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm close with my, with my mom and Bob, and you know, I was close to my in my biological dad when he was alive and it's like but even still Stacy took precedence over them in terms of my intimacy and, and vulnerability above my own children my relationship should with Stacy should always trump even my relationship with my own children we in the United States of America and the West specifically idolize our children to the exclusion of intimacy with our spouse this is a big, rampant problem in the U.S. especially. We have to chase after vulnerability and intimacy with our spouse even more than loving our children. Your marriage comes before your children. Wow. Yeah, I said it. This, your marriage and your intimacy with your spouse has to trump past shames or failures. But this requires a ton of vulnerability, doesn't it? But do that early on. Do that early on. I, ex- I, I um, solicited for some, some people's words of wisdom this past week, um, past couple days, on their marriage and, and what they do to make their marriage an intimate one and a, and a holy one. And I'm going to read you a couple of theirs. I'm going to leave names off. But um, one I thought was good... Um, was um, in our in our in our twenty something years of marriage, um, we we walk every day, and we hold hands and we talk about our day, our children, our goals, our dreams, and anything and everything. It's absolutely the best part of our day. We've always eaten together every night. 
with the whole family, have conversations, and usually spend the rest of the night together. We joke around, we pray uh, together multiple times a day, we fast together for specific things and people. Another response I got was another good one. I'm going to share with you guys if I can find it real quick. We do our best to pray, read and discuss scripture and matters of the kingdom together daily. We eat together whenever possible. We have face-to-face quality time and discussions about anything and everything. Those are two different couples that independently did, did not know that I was asking the same questions. What did you notice that was similar there? Praying together, spending time talking about the precepts of God and the things of the kingdom at least, right? Eating together. They both included eating together. What was another one? Just time together. Spending time. Sometimes we make our lives so stinking busy that we don't have time to grow and invest in the intimacy of our spouse, don't we? We just think, oh, I've got a little block in the calendar, nothing going on. Sure, sign me up for that. Or the kids want to do karate. Sure, let's do that. Right? It's like we just make our lives so busy and, and by the time we see our spouse at the end of the day, we're just just dead tired. And we've got no more emotional energy to give them. Your marriage, this is principle number two, so let me review. Principle number one, be, be mutually determined to be growing your marriage into a relationship that is the most intimate of all earthly relationships. And this will bring you through thick and thin, through storms, through, through, through trials, through hardships. Principle number two, Your marriage is like a garden. What you sow, you will reap. So if if your marriage is like a garden, I just made a true claim. If your marriage is like a garden, what are the seeds of that garden? What are the seeds of that garden, do you think? I heard somebody say in the back, your words. Your words, with your words, have the power of life and death. Your tongue has the power of life and death. A bad experience I had actually fairly recently was I was feeling really stressed. I was overcoming this illness and I had stuff at work was piling up and I I was up early thinking about it all and praying about it and just took a walk around the house and and, I decided, no, I'm going to go upstairs and Stacy was still asleep or mostly asleep and I I just sat on the bed and I just opened up her and I was like sharing with her all of these negative things and stresses and anxieties that I was having. And much of it she she took as like uh, you know personal like I was actually complaining about her or something and I was just actually saying I feel like I'm not doing a good job at much of what I'm doing right now I just feel overwhelmed or something and so those seeds were growing in our marriage all day long just for a matter of like eight hours and so that by the time I got home those seeds have kind of have been growing and it created tension in our marriage because I planted seeds that were not good seeds First thing in the day. I like what the, the couples responded to me. And they said they, they spend time together. And I, I would especially like in the mornings. Spending time together planting seeds of, of truth and positivity with one another. But yeah, words are a big one. They're some of the most frequently sown seeds in our marriage. Think about this. What, note, the, note the first words that you speak the first words that come out of your mouth towards your spouse when you see him or her in the, in the morning. What are those words? Good morning. <laughs> good morning would be a good start. God bless America. 
God bless America. Yeah. Oh boy. I'm going to see through something there, bud. Take note of the last words that you speak with your spouse that day. I guarantee you there's a correlation. If you speak words of grace and mercy into your husband or into your wife at the beginning of the day when they see you, then you go off and the seeds are germinating, right? And you're separated for the majority of the day. And you come back and it's like, let me check on my garden now. Or let me see what I can get out of my garden, right? What kind of fruit can I glean from my garden? But if you sow seeds earlier in the day that are not good seed, you're going to get nasty fruit. Principle number three. So let's review. Uh, number one, be mutually determined to grow your marriage into a relationship that is the most intimate of all earthly relationships. This takes mutual trust, doesn't it? It's like you both, um, you both could end each other. You're both agreeing not to. It's like this, uh, remember the Cold War, the, uh, the, the assured mutual destruction? That's marriage. Number two, your marriage is a garden. Are you tending to it? Are you working it? Are you, are you sowing good seeds into it? It takes a lot of work to garden, doesn't it? Number three, remind each other in some way why you've married and the role your marriage plays in the kingdom. This is the biggest one right here. Your marriage is not just about Gay Rutledge and Stacey Rutledge. It's not just about you know Howard and Jackie. It's about the kingdom of God. What if you got your head out of the sand? And quit thinking about yourself for a second. And think about how your marriage is a representation of the gospel of the kingdom on a social stage that is Dothan, Alabama, or your workplace. Because I guarantee you that if you're a believer and you're going to a workplace that is a secular workplace and you're surrounded by people that are not believers and all you do half the time is complain about your marriage to those people, do you think they're going to want anything to do with your God? Negative. But if you go to that workplace and they see that your marriage is different and that you and your husband have just a sweet joy about you, that might, that just might pique their interest. That Man, that something sacrificial about those two. And I want to know more about that. What is compelling them to want to be different? To want to be holy? Talk about the precepts of God together. If your marriage is a representation of God's love for his people, what we call the gospel of the kingdom, Talk about it. Talk about the Bible together. And act it out. And keep this on the forefront of your minds. Go with me, I'm going to take you to one more verse. Ephesians chapter 5. This is a big marriage. Big marriage chapter here. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read like two verses. Ephesians 5, 21. Ephesians 5.21 says, Submit to one another in fear of the Messiah. That right there is so counterculture, isn't it? Our culture says everything about, like, you just YOLO. You live for yourself, right? Your spouse is there to maybe, like, prop you up or, or give you some support or make you feel good about yourself or whatever. Or make you a sandwich. But this, this verse says, Submit to one another in fear of the Messiah. Wives should submit to their husbands. As they do to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife. Just as the Messiah is the head of the ecclesia, the church, the community. He is himself the one who keeps the body safe. 
Just as the Messianic community or the church submits to the Messiah, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. As for husbands, though, love your wives just as the Messiah loved the ecclesia, the church. Indeed, he gave himself up on behalf, on its behalf, in order to make it holy for God, making it clean through immersion in, in like a baptism, so to speak, in order to present the ecclesia to himself as a bride to be proud of without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but holy and without defect. So we always see this, right? We, we always see wives submit to your husbands. Oh, I don't like that. And sometimes there's jerks of husbands that take this these few verses and say, aha, you got to submit to me, woman. Right? If one of these sides of the coin is off center, bad things happen. Wives, if you're not submitting to your husbands, then you're, you're, you're messing up the hierarchy of the biblical structure of the family. But husbands, if you're not loving your wives like Messiah loved us and loves us, then your wife doesn't deserve to submit to you. You don't deserve to have a wife who submits to you. It's just, that's how it is. If you're not willing to lay down your life, if you're not willing to show her and, and, and woo her to you, then who is she to submit to you? Both sides of the coin have to be in order for that to be a harmonious relationship. Marriages that are healthy are effective in the kingdom. Marriages that are healthy are effective in the kingdom. Sometimes, and here's the thing, maybe prior military people can think about this this way. It's like, you have a military unit, and, and, and they go off to combat, and they see combat, and, and, and let's say... Just just 30% of the soldiers in that unit get injured or get sick. You know, so many of the wars in human history, there's more casualties from sickness than there is actually lead flying back and forth. 30% of that, that force is sick with an illness, let's say the flu. Are they an effective fighting force? No, they're not. And that force has to be withdrawn. That unit has to be withdrawn from the front lines, from the combat. They are now ineffective at fighting. Now, now, they have to, now they have to heal. Now they're going to spend all their time and energies regrouping, healing, recovering, retraining. And then and only then can they be pushed back out to the front lines if they survive as a unit. And that's how it is with marriage. So many marriages are so just wrought with dysfunction and focused on little things and problems. And it's like they're completely ineffective in the kingdom of God. And the, the reverse is true. The converse is true. That marriages that are healthy are extremely potent and powerful in the kingdom of God. They draw others to the love of God. Because people see, man, there's something different about this couple. Or they can reach down and help other couples that are struggling. Other marriages that are on the verge. Because they are a healthy marriage, they can help unhealthy marriages. So in this third principle... Ask yourself, ask your spouse, what is the mission of our marriage? What is the call on our marriage? Is is Satan distracting us, maybe, with all these problems and keeping us ineffective as a fighting force? What does our marriage look like five years from now? Have you ever asked your spouse that? What have our lives looked like five years from now? 
Is it serving and building the kingdom of God? Or are we still just in survival mode and, and just treading water and trying not to inhale water? Or is it like another a failed attempt at being rejoined to another fallen human? Guys, ask these questions of your spouse now or of your future spouse. And then make changes, adjust. I, I really truly believe that our nation is heading towards a time of cultural warfare where truth will be completely just disintegrated. I mean, you can't disintegrate truth, but the, the, at least the attempted understanding of it will be hijacked. Yeah. The Bible prophesies of this, that people will call good evil and evil good. We're coming up on those times. We're like, we're, we just passed the exit here for those times sign. And the, on, the off ramp is coming up. And it's just going to go spiral exponentially out of control the closer we get to that destination. If your marriage is not buttoned up, if your marriage is not holy, what are you doing like right now to fix it? And you don't have to do it alone. Don't, you, you can't do it alone, actually. Number one, you need the grace of God. You, you need the love of Messiah between you to, to make it work. And number two, you need people to support you. You need, you need to reach out to other human beings who have a healthy marriage or have had a healthy marriage and say, what could you do to help me? I don't want to just keep treading water when I know that there's a war to fight. I'd rather be on the front lines being an effective uh, vehicle or effective weapon in the hands of my God than sit here and try to tread water or bail water out of the lifeboat. Just, that's all I'm doing now. Okay, how, how's it going being in God's army? Well, for the past five years, we've just been bailing water out of this boat. So you haven't stormed the beach yet? No, we're just still we're trying to find the hole. We're trying to plug the hole. Okay. What are you doing different? That's a big ocean there. And the water you're dumping out just ended up two feet off to the side of your boat. <coughs> right back up in your boat. Maybe you should try something different. And guys, my prayer and my hope and my heart for the marriages of Dothan Messianic Fellowship and people like listening to this is that we'll just be different. I'm so fed up with just the norm, the status quo of marriages. Grow your marriage. Invest in your marriage. Don't just survive. Do something different. Be holy. Father, I pray right now that you'll fill this room with people that have a longing for holiness. Your Holy Spirit would just envelop all of us. And it would drive us to want to be holy and set apart. Father, if there's marriages in this room that are on the verge, if there's marriages that are hurting, may your Holy Spirit comfort and convict and teach and expose the sins that are within us all so that we could repent and we could seek help from those around us and grow in our marriage, Father. Marriage is, and the institution of it is such a beautiful picture of the gospel of the kingdom. What an opportunity we have. Father, I pray if there's anyone in this room that has yet to accept the gospel of the kingdom, that they would do so today. And they would know about the saving love and grace that you have for all of us. And they would be saved from judgment. And that they would be partakers in your kingdom. I pray this in Yeshua's matchless and beautiful name. Amen.